0: Welcome to the Learning Shared podcast. Hello, my name is Alan Wood and I'm your host. Thanks very much for listening. So Learning Shared is a space for anyone with an interest in supporting the needs of vulnerable learners in our society, including those with special educational needs and disabilities. We'll be hearing from and talking with a wide range of colleagues and stakeholders, including teachers, specialist practitioners, school leaders, researchers, as well as parents and carers. They'll be sharing creative, inspiring ideas, effective practice and things they've learned along their journey. With that in mind, please get in touch if you'd like to suggest a topic for a future episode or if you'd like to be involved in any way. You can visit us at www.learningshared.org or tweet us at underscore learningshared.org. The Learning Share podcast is brought to you by Evidence for Learning and the EFL Send community. This is a growing community of teachers, practitioners, school leaders, researchers and academics that support children, young people and adults with special educational needs and disabilities, or indeed any form of additional learning needs. You can find out more about the EFL Send community and Evidence for Learning at www.evidenceforlearning.net. I Hope you enjoy this episode. Episode one, a recovery curriculum. Loss and life for our children and schools post pandemic, part one. Hello, so this episode was recorded during the third week of April, 2020 at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. Schools across the UK and in many parts of the world are closed to the vast majority of learners and children's lived experiences being shaped by unprecedented circumstances. Professor Barry Carpenter and Matthew Carpenter, who is principal at Baxter College in Kidderminster, have been analysing the loss children have suffered during this time and the potential anxiety and trauma this may cause with significant impact on their ability to learn effectively. Together, they've developed the construct of a recovery curriculum enabling schools to consider the processes that they'll need to put in place in order to successfully transition children back to school. Their ideas are contained in a think piece entitled A Recovery Curriculum, Loss and Life for our Children and Schools Post-Pandemic. This is available for you to read, download, and share with colleagues at www.recoverycurriculum.org. Now, I'm delighted that on this first episode of Learning Shared, we're joined by Barry Carpenter. Barry's going to talk to us about the Think Piece and he's going to give a presentation that explores important factors and ideas that underpin the need for some form of recovery curriculum. For those of you listening to this as an audio podcast, we've put a link to a video slideshow of the presentation on the Recovery Curriculum website. Before I introduce Barry, let me just say a few words about his career barry is the professor of mental health and education at oxford Brookes university his career in education spans more than 40 years he's been a classroom teacher a head teacher at three schools barry's been an inspector of schools as well as the director of the center for special education at westminster college oxford In 2009, Barry was appointed by the UK Department of Education as its National Director of the Children with Complex Learning Difficulties and Disabilities Research Project. In that role, some of you may know that he led an important and valuable piece of research on the use of engagement as a pedagogy. That work became very much the foundation of the Rochford Review of 2016 and was subsequently developed into what's become the department's new draft guidance on engagement. Bringing his career up to date, Barry is currently chairing a working group that's looking at the needs of girls on the autism spectrum, and that's been the focus of his most recent book. He's been awarded the honour of CBE by the Queen for services to children with special needs. I'm delighted to introduce Professor Barry Carpenter, accompanied in places by some very enthusiastic birds in his back garden. So Barry, tell me how the construct of the recovery curriculum came into being.
1: As the pandemic began to grow, more and more was being said about the mental health of the general population. And I was wondering, well, how does that fit with children? There was little talk of children. So I deliberately began to read the never-ending news stream uh, around the the um, COVID-19, but particularly looking for anything that talked about children. And a picture was starting to emerge about the, the child experiences. And, of course, everything is not rooted in strong research. Um, it has some evidence base, but even then it's not a solid evidence base because this has hit us in this calendar year and we've never known anything like it before. But I was trying to get above Spurious Anecdote to start to look at trends that were appearing in in the news and in, let's say, worthy commentaries on the pandemic. And as I began to read and and formulate some views, I began to talk to my son, Matthew. Matthew is the principal of Baxter College, a a seven academy trust school uh, based in Kidderminster. he began to respond by thoughts and through thoughts around what he would do for children, therefore, on their return to school. And from that iterative conversation came the notion of, well, we need to help children recover from whatever their experience of this pandemic may be. And for some children, that might be a very minimal one of just, I really missed my friends. Um, But for others, it would be deeper. And the more I read, the more I analysed, the more Matthew and I talked, we formulated eventually what has become uh, the recovery curriculum. Um, The recovery curriculum is a construct. It's not a written curriculum telling you to do this, this, and this. There's no tick boxes. There's no accountability to government. It's just about a series of signposts as to where we might go with children when they do return to school, based on sound hypotheses of what their lived experience may have been during these weeks of lockdown and of no school. I'm going to focus in this podcast today on the evidence base and and what is known, and I've tried to root and ground that with quotes from children and young people and then give some sound opinion pieces to frame some of that. Um, I'm going to briefly touch on and what might you do when the children return to school, but that's going to be dealt with in greater depth by Matthew in the second in this podcast series, um, where he will look more deeply at some of the strategies within school for enabling children to make a successful transition back to being efficient and effective learners. So this presentation, this podcast, is about a recovery curriculum. It's about the loss children will have experienced during this time of of lockdown, during this time of the pandemic crisis that has hit our world. What has life been like for our children during the time of the pandemic? And how will life be when our children return to school? This Presentation is based on the think piece that you will find on recoverycurriculum.org. And the think piece is titled the same as my presentation for today A Recovery Curriculum Loss and Life for Our Children and Schools Post Pandemic. It's highly recommended that you read that think piece in conjunction with this podcast. And indeed, if you're using this podcast to stimulate discussion amongst staff teams, it would be a fair expectation that people will have read the, uh, the think piece. This presentation, as with any PowerPoint, can only be a series of coat pegs on which to hang thoughts. What underpins the recovery curriculum? From my systematic search of news reporting, of opinion pieces, what emerged clearly conceptually was this notion of loss. The most frequently mentioned losses in that literature search were these five that you'll see on your screen now. A loss of routine, a loss of structure, a loss of friendship, a loss of opportunity, and a loss of freedom. Just pause for a moment. Just think, what do those mean for each of your children? Other losses, have been mentioned. Some of those relate specifically to adults. So, for example, a loss of financial stability. Some of the losses mentioned, I would class as sub-components of those major themes, those major trends that I've articulated in the five losses. So, in, in effect, those five losses have become the evidence base and the catalyst for constructing the recovery curriculum. I'm going to now illuminate each of those five losses by just giving you some words or insights from children themselves. That the loss of this daily routine, of the structure, of the coping mechanisms, for some children, there will be a loss of sleep. And that was definitely mentioned many times. But I think it relates very much to routine because sleep is part of a daily routine for any of us, but for the developing child whose brain is is having growth spurts, just as their body is having growth spurts, sleep is absolutely vital to sound, healthy brain development. Some parents may have observed their children being quieter. Others may flinch, may be easily alarmed, Some children may have experienced panic attacks. The heightened exposure of children to online learning may have encouraged some children in their own time to have explored aspects of the internet that are the dark web. It may have caused some children with the internalized tension of this experience to have begun to self-harm. The next slide actually deals with children can find it alarming that the infrastructure of their week has been abandoned. One day they were in school, the next they were not. That's a deeply troubling thing. Much as children may moan and whinge in the morning about having to rush out of school, grab their school bag, get on the school transport, or take the walk to school, it gives structure to the day. They know where they are. They know where they will be. They will know what's coming next. Now is PE, and after this, we're back to class for literacy. They know. That gives them an inherent sense of security. And that is gone. Much as they know they're in their own home, much as they know that they are being home tutored by family members, This is not their usual daily ritual and experience. And they may feel quite alone uh, in many ways because they are not interacting with their normal group of peers. Therefore, there's been a significant loss of friendship. Yes, again, those can be maintained through the the mobile phone, through the, the laptop and the internet. All of that, but it's not the same as being side by side with your best mate, the knowing looks, the giggles, the laughter, the sharing of a joke, the playing games in the playground, the conversations as a teenager that you have about the latest music that you're into. All of that deeper social interaction has gone. There is a profound sense of loss. And for some of our children, it will have triggered a bereavement response. They will grieve for the loss of that group of peers. It will give them angst. They will mourn the loss of their social interaction with their best friends. And for some, the abandonment of the examination system, wise as that judgment has been, necessary as that judgment has been, For some children, there would have been a rite of passage by sitting their GCSE or A-level exams, or indeed graduates, as they now are, sitting their university finals. As this A-level student said, I was preparing to run a marathon, but now they tell me there is no race. What will that mean to that student in the future? Will they ever see a significance in examinations again? Because examinations have always been a constant, a static in our cycle of growth and development through the school years and beyond. It was a very dramatic decision. Again, I would say a necessary decision. But do the children truly comprehend why this has been? Will they feel that the judgments made on them to be awarded GCSEs and A-levels in 2020 have been sound judgments. Can they trust? What if they felt they were in dispute with a teacher? It wasn't a teacher that they liked or liked them. Will they feel they've been fairly judged? I wonder. There are always that group of children who are actually young carers. School, for them, may have been the highlight of their day because they escaped the routines they had to undertake as a young carer in the home. Not that they begrudged those routines, they were acts of love. But to go and be a child again with your friends in school was very, very valuable to them, emotionally and mentally during any day. Now they are home 24-7. Their care responsibilities will have been greater because in many homes, the usual pattern of receiving carers will have gone. So for those children, there is a loss of freedom. And it probably experiences the, um, and, and mirrors the um, experiences of other children. Um, there is this weight of responsibility. And yes, they should be home learning, but somehow it feels inconsequential compared to the demands of the routines they're having to carry out in their home because now now in some instances, they may even be the sole carer of that much-loved parent. So there you can see the five losses in the lived experience of children. And all of that may have brought about this fragility in their mental health. Our children are vulnerable. They are vulnerable. Anxiety, trauma, bereavement, those are powerful forces. They were not meant to hit children in the way they have now. There is an unwritten script in all of this because some children will not have articulated their anxiety. It's maybe in their mood swings or in their sullen behavior or their sudden quietness that parents are noticing the change in their child. The demands of having to homeschool on parents cannot be underestimated. And indeed, for teachers, they are teaching in different ways. They are probably constantly worried that they're doing the right thing for their children. In this return to school, whenever it happens, we mustn't forget the mental health and emotional well being of teachers and educators in any school environment. So those five losses I think have, have generated, as the previous quote has said, this, these four consequences of bereavement, this grief response, this mourning response, which for some children will be prolonged mourning. It will take them a long time to recover from the sudden dramatic loss of that essential peer group. For some, being ripped away from their school, from their social group, will I think invoke attachment issues. We know that if attachment is not dealt with effectively, then it can really color the learning attainments, achievements, and overall performance of the child. I think anxiety will be very common. Who would have ever thought that schools could be closed in the way that they are now. Yes, children are used to schools being closed for holiday periods, but there's plenty of notice about those. They're part of the annual cycle. The six-week summer holiday is much looked forward to. But the drama with which schools shut, the suddenness with which schools shut, the, the rapid activity of teachers to get resources together to support children in the lockdown period. It will have caused some dismay, and that dismay, unprocessed, will turn to anxiety. For some children, that event will have been traumatic. The sustained period away from school will have been traumatic. Having to live intensely only with your family, and maybe the relationships are sometimes volatile, will have caused trauma too. Some children may experience any of those things to a minimal level. But even at that level, that is justification that in any curriculum planning that takes place during the return period, those issues need to be addressed, unaddressed. They will forever tarnish the attainment and achievement of the child. Forever, that child will feel they are not who they should have been as a learner in the school context. What are the children thinking? I've hinted at some of that in the previous slide, but these are just some questions that I've picked up from my conversations with children at a safe distance, let me say. Is school always going to be transitory? It's always been such a constant. And yet adults, can make these dramatic decisions that change your life, that take your school away from you, but in so doing, take that valued friendship group away from you. And the teacher, for some children, it may be that teacher that they admired so much, they trusted so much, they actually wanted to share their days with. they have been abandoned. I know that was not a willful act but to the young child who is cognitively developing and whose language structures are still not rich and diverse. The sense, the inner feeling, may be that of abandonment. We were walking a path together, you and I, my teacher, and then this thing, this virus, sent us on different journeys. Can our lives reconnect? Will trust return to our relationship? Can it be reestablished? There are other experiences in the world that can inform our thinking. They are not the same. But the level of trauma, the drama of the sudden change mirrors what has happened during this pandemic. And I'm pulling therefore on what is now some very sound research from the Christchurch earthquakes in New Zealand. Just as we've been told to safe distance, just as our children have rehearsed the hand washing routine and singing happy birthday mercilessly, the children in New Zealand were taught when they felt tremors to go into what is known as the turtle pose. And here you see this little lad, Jesse, breaking from that turtle pose. How many of our children feel guilty because they didn't wash their hands for two minutes or they forgot to sing happy birthday? How many of our children know that they went closer to a neighbor than they should have done? They didn't always keep that safe distance. These routines and rituals have been imposed on our children. We've done our best to explain to them but in some cases, have they achieved deep understanding? And it's perhaps worth, once we are through the pandemic, just talking through again why we had to do those things and now asking children, in what way did those routines, because you have survived, in what way did those routines help you to survive, to keep well, to keep safe, to keep strong? There is much debate now around the value of masks. Every day on our TV screens, we see people who are health workers having to wear masks as part of their jobs. What if we have to wear masks? And it's probable, to some degree, we will be advised to mask in some way, whether that be with a scarf or whether it be with a a made mask. What's the consequence of human interaction? Not to be able to see the face of the person you're trying to interact with. Will children feel comfortable wearing masks? We cannot take away again the the impact visually on the mental adjustment of the child to that situation. I mentioned attachment earlier, and I think it's worth reminding ourselves what we know about attachment. That 50% of lifetime mental illness starts before the age of 15. Children have experienced attachment issues during this pandemic. For many children, they will have just dealt with it. Their logic will have sorted out why that needed to be, or they've been satisfied that for a temporary period of time, their main contact with their friends was via their mobile phone or via their laptop and the internet. But for others, they will not have been happy with that. So what seeds of that lifetime of mental illness have been planted due to this pandemic? We can't be sure. We will never truly know, which is why in our recommendations about the recovery curriculum, we're suggesting that there should be something for all children that checks out they're okay, that rehearses the experiences and the lessons learned from these pandemic experiences that significantly targets emotional resilience that brings them back to the status of an emotionally healthy child whose well-being is intact and used to create a sense of wellness. Because we should remember that children that are securely attached are better learners. They're better problem solvers. They achieve more academically. And socially, they're more cooperative, they can self-regulate, they're socially empathetic, they're more self-aware. How many children, because they feel isolated, will have lost the ability to be empathetic to others, will need some time to re-engage emotionally, to rediscover the joy of social interaction, because they've had to be so self-contained and learn to content themselves during these periods of isolation? Many, I think, will have experienced anxiety during this period. I just want to, to revisit what anxiety does to a child. Anxiety is common in all of us. It's when that anxiety gets out of control, the cortisol levels in the brain begin to rise. When the child gets extremely anxious, the cortisol levels hit the surface of the brain and can block the memory imprint. That child may have been no trouble in your lesson. They sat very quietly, seemingly attentive, but in fact, they were really just holding themselves together to get through that lesson. If you then asked them, what did I teach you yesterday? They would reply, I don't know. They're not being rude. They just don't remember. There was no imprint on the brain. The anxious child is not a learning child. If our classrooms, when our children return, are ones with expectations about academic attainment alone, anxiety will increase. We need opportunities that allow emotional expression. We need opportunities in our schools that allow social interaction. The rediscovering of working together, child and teacher, child and child. For staff teams to rediscover working together they have been dispersed into communities and working from home, not a natural situation. Teaching relies on interaction of feeding off ideas between colleagues, so it is for learners. So much of our work in schools is about group work with children about peer-to-peer interaction, all of that is gone. Let's not just think it will automatically return. And even if it does return, and quickly, whilst we'll be thankful, we should have made sure that we engineered that process to be sure that the children have the right and prerequisite skills to return to that status of effective learner. So to the recovery curriculum itself, there isn't a book you can open. It really is a construct. We've chosen to call it a construct because that word construct is part of the wider word construction. This is about constructing the children's return to school, constructing the nature of their learning experiences and program during those first weeks back at school. In fact, in the best practice, we will see a co-construction, a co-creation of the experiences that where the child says they were worried by the constant news bulletins announcing the daily death tolls. Let's deal with it. Let's plan some lessons around that. What did you hear? How did you feel? These are the facts, this is how it was dealt with. This is why we had to open the Nightingale Hospital in London and in other parts of the country. So let's co-construct, root our curriculum in the lived experience of the child, not in, well, the next step in the national curriculum says, no, that is not where to start. That will destroy our children. They will return to you fragile. Some will recover rapidly, but they will return to you in a fragile state and you need to delicately manage their return to the status of learner. And that will take, at the highest levels in a school, compassionate leadership. We need care and compassion to be demonstrated throughout our school communities. We need to just enjoy being with each other again, to share our common humanity and the essence of what that may mean. Yes, a recovery curriculum should have aims. It should reflect the values of your school, of your community. Let's make them live. You already have those written. Just go back to them and say now, divorced of a national curriculum framework or any other statutory curriculum framework, divorced of any Ofsted driving to inspect us, What is the true heart of the aims and values of this school? And how will they inform best practice with our children now? How will they inform the judgments we need to make? We've none of us ever managed such a situation before. It relies on our teaching skills, our compassion and our humanity. It's a personalized response to that lived experience of the child. And we can do it. I have every confidence our profession can do this. To help us along that journey, Matthew has conceptualized five leader, levers, and he's going to talk to the five levers in the second of these podcasts. Um, you'll see here the levers deal with relationships, with community, indeed, building your school community. How are we engaging within that school community? That whole thing of, of metacognition and the scaffolding of the learning experiences, but again, rooted and grounded in the child's experience. And to build trust in the child, for that child to trust you as their teacher again, we need to be transparent in the curriculum, not fishing it out of a book that they've never seen before, but openly, transparently talking to them and showing how you're responding to their needs. That may be a very short lived thing. I hope it is, but it needs to be there. And the children need space. Maybe we because we'll return hopefully in times of better weather, maybe playtimes are extended to give them that extended period of social interaction after their lives have been so bereft of that social interaction. Give them time to just play. Give them time to, as teenagers, set up a football match. Give them space. That social dimension of their learning, of their being, has been negated largely during this period. They need some time. They need some space to rediscover self-image, concept and confidence. So there are three phases to the recovery curriculum. Firstly, holistic recovery. All children have experienced the pandemic. All children have listened to the news All children have heard the daily death tolls announced, whether they have truly understood or not. All children have experienced lockdown. There is much merit in every school putting into place, in whatever way it can, focused time that allows children to recover, to make sense of some of the things that they have heard during this lockdown period. So we would recommend that there is... There are a series of activities that all children can participate in to rebuild that emotional resilience. For some, however, there will be specific needs led approaches, a more focused recovery. That might be done in small groups. It might be dealing with trauma. It might be dealing with grief, but a more personalized uh, approach uh, as an intervention. But for some, The recovery may take some time. Maybe a child lost a grandparent during the pandemic. Maybe they lost a next door neighbor. Maybe the lady over the road who was a nurse died on the front line. And they've heard many conversations, seen their parents deeply upset, seen people weeping, and have felt, but not known how to understand those feelings. How are you going to structure that in your school? How is that going to continue as it may beyond this academic year and well into next? We need to recalibrate the child as a learner through that process of recovery. And for some, that recalibration will take longer and more effort and energy than for others. As this next quote says, a lot of that is going to be down to you as the skilled intuitive teacher. Not often we hear teacher intuition talked about these days, but do you know, your gut reactions are at times going to be the thing that will inform your best judgments. It's all you have. We have no history of dealing with these situations of reconvening our schools and restructuring the learning experiences of our children. That child you knew as a happy, smiley, engaged learning child may come back to you as the pale, sullen, worried child who hides behind a mask of fear. That child is disenfranchised from the curriculum. That child sees no relevance. And coming back to school because they've learned to live without school how are you going to re-engage that child you see our quest our journey is to put in place that process of re-engagement to lead that child through stages of a fleeting engagement to more sustained engagement to eventually through to the pinnacle of authentic deep engagement some of you will have heard me speak before and often talk about engagement is the liberation of intrinsic motivation within each child there is something that deeply motivates them we need to be able to look at what that would be to do that you might want to use various lenses of engagement some of you will know the work that i've written on engaging learners with complex needs which is referenced at the end of this uh, uh, at the end of the think piece that we've advised that you read uh, and it resulted uh, in collaboration with several colleagues who led uh, during the time that i was director for the complex Learn difficulties and disabilities research project but there's also at the end of this presentation the web link to the engagement for learning website and there you can download uh, the engagement profile some of you will have been using the version that emerged from the original 2012 research which had seven indicators some of you will now be moving towards the wonderful opportunities presented by the rochford review to use engagement to summative assessment and the five indicators that have been remodeled based on the findings from the original research whichever approach they give you a lens a lens to shine and illuminate the learning pathway of the child upon their return to school Are they still curious? Can they innovate? It helps you ask all of those questions. It stops the immediate focus on attainment in literacy, attainment in numeracy. How are we going to get them ready for exams next year when they've missed such a significant chunk of year 10? We need to get them back to being efficient and effective learners before we can do any of those other things. Please give the children, as one of the leaders says, the space to actually do that, to rediscover the process of learning, to be reignited with the flame of learning, and to be awarded once more the status of learner. Other resources that I want to recommend that I think are going to be quite crucial because we need to talk about the virus. We need to talk about the fact that everybody in the world experienced this. We've never known such a situation. We have been fighting a war against an invisible enemy. When we've talked about the NHS, we've talked about them as our troops on the front line. Some of your children may have had parents working in the NHS. They have seen the distress on their parents' faces. They've heard the washing machine going hour after hour, day after day, as clothing is having to be washed for fear that it's contaminated. So... The first of the resources I'm drawing your attention to is the free downloadable resource from Books Beyond Words. These are wordless books, and Books Beyond Words very quickly produced a wordless pamphlet about the coronavirus. Some of you are thinking, well, my children could read, so why do we need something wordless? When something's wordless, it puts less loading on the brain. It allows the amygdala, the emotional area of the brain, to be free and to emotionally express. Some of your children need that opportunity for emotional expression. So maybe you'd want to use some of these pictures to, again, co-construct a story. What do you think is happening here? Why is the lady lying down uh, and pulling a tissue out of a box? Who do you think the lady's phoning? What's the call operator saying to her? What's going to happen? Where is she going to be? What's she doing? Use those pictures as triggers to co-create that story. And there are some other titles in that series, again, completely free, that for some of your children, you might want to look at in greater depth, particularly for those children that are deeply troubled. These could be part of that program. And again, don't be frightened of the wordless nature. Use the picture as a stimulus. What teacher with any age group does not use a visual image as a stimulus? It's part of our teaching repertoire. Just make more of it at this time. Do not overload that troubled brain. Some of those children are not only troubled, but the events around them are troubling. There's an app version of that for those of you that wish to use that technology, and the books are available in e-format from Books Beyond Words. Another resource I would highly recommend is produced by the charity Nurture UK. It's a bereavement box, and it has 60 activity cards that don't dwell on deep grief, but rather... Release the child from the constraints of of grief. Help the child to deal with grief as part of life. That it's okay to mourn the loss of the the time you had with those friends. Um, Maybe for some children, again, this would go to that deeper level of recovery curriculum. Maybe they sadly lost a grandparent. Maybe a neighbor in their street died. Maybe the neighbor opposite their house was a nurse who died, caring for others on the front line. And that child has heard all of those conversations but has never been invited to be part of them maybe you can help that child resolve those troubling issues so do have a look at the nurture uk resources and if you want some some really good fun activities but again that get back to the very um, essential and fundamental ways of learning in children you might want to look at 60 sensory minutes and for those of you working with children with autism or complex needs This would particularly match their learning styles. Some children, when they return, may have experienced self-harm. That they were so troubled by what they were hearing that they put themselves through some risky behaviours and began to self-harm. This book deals with, in a very constructive way, through a whole series of lesson plans, building emotional resilience, giving those children effective strategies so that they feel that they do not uh, need to go through self-harm. There's also a very good app available called Calm Harm that you may wish to use. But this again would be about the personalized responses. This wouldn't be about the holistic intervention. And the digital experiences our children have had may have caused that self-harm. The dark web is out there and some children will have discovered it in very negative ways. It's a conflict, isn't it? That we warn children about how much time they're spending on their phones. Their screen time should be limited in a day for very sound reasons about brain growth and development and living in virtual worlds. And now they've become totally reliant for their learning via the computer, via the laptop, via the internet. How are we now going to tell them, well, you really shouldn't be on the computer for that many hours in a day? So let's think about self-harm and think about digital self-harm and the risks that that brings. Posting negative comments about themselves on Facebook, for example, that then receive negative affirmations is going to do nothing for the self-esteem, self-concept, self-worth of that child. There may be, over time, deeper issues that you unearth. There just needs to be a structure in school that enables that to be dealt with. We have to think of this as the hospital situation. Some people go in for surgery and are in and out in 24 hours. Others are in there longer. Maybe they're dealing with cancer, and it takes several operations, multiple rounds of chemotherapy and radiotherapy, to get the cancer under control, or even eliminate the cancer and give them back their lives. It is the same process in terms of restoring our children's positive mental health that we need to go through. And for some, there are no time limits on that. The impact of media cannot be underestimated. As Tina Ray and Grace Carpenter Hershey write in the book on Girls and Autism, These media images are giving unrealistic notions to our children and affecting their self-esteem and self-image. It can lead to all sorts of consequences, including eating disorders. I think this pandemic, its impact on children's emotional well-being and mental health may, in some instances, have triggered these deep responses. Let's not ignore them. Let's use the materials that are out there to deal with them. And again, I commend to you some of the books that Tina Ray has written in recent times with great insight, but always with with practical implications. The lesson plans are there. The classroom activities are there, all of which focus centrally on building resilience. Our children cannot have gone through this pandemic unscathed. We need to restore their mental health and rebuild their resilience. The scheme is coming into schools for mental health leads. We're just starting, really, that programme. But again, Tina Ray, with two colleagues, has put together a wellbeing toolkit that mental health leads can use in schools. Maybe now is the time to have an intensive focus on this within the guidelines already that our government has given for mental health in schools. Let's use it. Let's use that permission and really go for it big time in terms of what we give to our children and the opportunities we have to explore this whole issue of mental health and emotional well-being. Some other resources you may want to look at are those from Butterfly Print, and they produce these wonderful emotional well-being journals where children can keep these as a personal record, or you can use the activities for group activity, for um, circle time, or at secondary level, for, for tutor time. Uh, You may want to use some of the materials for assemblies, all sorts of opportunities. They're very cheap and cheerful, and I highly recommend them. Ultimately, you know, what underpins all of our mental health is happiness. In my role as Professor of Mental Health and Education, I've carried out several international literature reviews. And always, it comes down to what makes us happy and what makes us sad. The pandemic has made many of us sad. We have not been able to be with our children, with our grandchildren, with our friends, with close members of family. And we've lived and we've done our best each day, but we know there've been times where we've been sad. Once the pandemic is lifted and the restrictions are gone, then is the time to rediscover what it is to be truly happy and it has to be for our children. When Beth Kogel leads her podcast for you, we've asked her specifically to talk about something that Bev and I have worked on over the last two or three years, which is a quite simple technique of a happiness box. What would be in your happiness box as a teacher? What would be in your happiness box? I have to say, I don't think wine counts. How do we engage the disengaged in our classroom? Because some of your children who were before the pandemic really wonderful learners will come back as the fragile disengaged child. We need to explore the relationships. There's almost an unwritten relationship curriculum in our schools. Our children have gone through a period of neglect, not willful neglect, but there is some damage there from this period and they have not had the attention of their teachers, the nurturing of their teachers. We must have a curriculum of recovery to deal with this loss and trauma. I've talked about the mental health. Let's just change a letter and talk about the mental wealth of our children. What treasure have you got as that skilled Wires teacher that you can invest in making your children mentally wealthy? Your children look to you to help them achieve their aspirations. Indeed, we're charged by the education reform Act 1988 for preparation for adulthood. Has this dashed the aspirations of our children? Can they have their vision back? And can you, through your skills as a human being, not just as a teacher, enable them to realise that can be a reality in their lives once more? Will we be returning to situations where teachers are saying, "Ah, the children are so far behind academically? What are we going to do? Is that really our starting point? As Matthew and I have said, unequivocally, in the think piece. Now is the time to return to more humane approaches, concerned with the fundamental well-being and secure positive development of the child. Without this, there will be no results that have true meaning and deep personal value to the child in terms of their preparation for adulthood. You see, much as you do not want it to be, when that child returns to school, it may no longer be the safe, constant place they thought it was. We have to be ready to understand that, accept it, hard as it is, and then to reframe those child's perceptions, show them that they can trust once more and that school is a safe place. It will look after them. As Harlem says in a a book back in 1998 now, but I think this quote has got a new life in the current context. Only those education institutions that can demonstrate the value they add to the lives of students... as well as to their communities will they be considered as successful in the future is that your school education intrinsically has resilience promoting aspects to it school is a place education as a process education as people some of you will have heard me speak before and you know i strongly believe and have written in the think piece teaching is a relationship-based profession. where are many other things, but fundamentally, it was something in your humanity that called you to be a teacher. Let's find what that was. Because now, in these early days of our children returning to schools, it will be human being to human being. One called teacher, and one called child, a learner. But it's that touching of humanity that will actually enable each to rediscover the strengths we bring to each other, to re-establish trust, and on that trust, we can build success in learning to help our children deliver their own dreams and aspirations. Andy Hargreaves, in some of his writing, has talked about the, the global epidemic around mental health in the world. But he said, at this point in history, we need creativity, care, and compassion. My goodness, he said those words in 2016, in 2020. We really need creativity, care and compassion on a scale we've never witnessed before because we have a pandemic, a worldwide pandemic that we have never witnessed before. And how do we solve it? In our humanity, how do we bring solutions? Creativity, care and compassion. Those should be our guiding principles as schools return. Dame Philippa Russell, who has for many years led the Council for Disabled Children and has been advising the Secretary of State during the pandemic crisis, when she read the recovery curriculum, she wrote these words. So many children have missed and lost so much. So many children and teachers will find the transition back more frightening and unsafe." rather than a return to the old normality. We are truly talking about major loss, but after loss can come recovery. And you offer through the recovery curriculum that pathway. Ponder on these words. All of this is a great forest. Inside the forest is the child. The forest is beautiful fascinating, green and full of hopes. There are no paths. Although it isn't easy, we have to make our own paths as teachers and children and families in the forest. Sometimes we find ourselves together within the forest. Sometimes we may get lost from each other. Sometimes we'll greet each other from far away across the forest. But it's living together in the forest that is important. And this living together is not easy. The Māori in New Zealand have some wonderful phrases. I'm not going to attempt to read the Māori, but the translation is, if kindness is shown, then kindness is what you shall receive. Simple, isn't it? It's just about the essence of humanity your children return, they will need some kindness. They felt lost. They felt bereft. I know you think at times, as their teacher, you're also their adversary. But in fact, you are a trusted adult who brings calm to their troubled world. They will look to you for that kindness, for that calming of their troubled minds. For those reassuring words that tell them Yes, it was tough, but it's okay now. You are here, and I am here too. If kindness is shown, then kindness is what you shall receive. Go forward. Be strong. Be what the children need you to be. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Barry, and thank you for listening. So over the coming episodes, we'll be hosting a series of conversations to start to explore and develop what a recovery curriculum might look like in the context of a school's existing curriculum we'll discuss and explore practical approaches with a number of school leaders practitioners and researchers and those conversations will touch on pedagogy resources and many other factors don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and please do get in touch with feedback if you'd like to either suggest a topic for a future episode or if you'd like to be involved in any way you can Find more information about the recovery curriculum at www.recoverycurriculum.org. There's links to resources, reference materials, as well as uh, video slide decks. Barry Carpenter's webpage is www.barrycarpentereducation.com. And the homepage for the podcast is www.learningshared.org. You can email us at learningshared at theteachercloud.net or tweet us at underscore learningshared. So for now, thanks again for listening. Stay safe and be well.